Hello, this is Darrell Whelan. I'm the Irish Independence 1916 Project Coordinator. As part of our commemoration coverage, we're bringing you a 10-part podcast series that is looking at the history of the Easter Rising in 10 objects. It's based on the book A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects by well-known historian John Gibney, who is the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor of Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. Morning, Darrell. John, how are you? Uh, on today's podcast, we're discussing 18th century books from Marsh's Library that were damaged by gunfire. Now, yeah, there's um, there's a couple of these, and up until a couple of years ago, apparently Marsh's Library didn't like um, draw too much attention to them, to in, especially when school groups were visiting, because you ran the risk of school kids running up and sticking their fingers into the into the holes in the binding and wiggling them around. And uh, it's worth saying something about Marsh's Library first, because um, it is, you know, famously uh, Ireland's first public library, founded at the beginning of the 18th century by Narcissus Marsh, the Anglican B- Bishop of Dublin, and um. The book in question, there's a number of these books that were damaged during the rising, but this one, and, and I'm going to have to um, apologise for my abysmal attempts at French pronunciation, you know, um, so cer- certain things in school didn't stick in. Trait um, de l'église par Jean Mestrezet, minister de saint Evangelle, I think, okay? Said like Sarkozy. I, yeah, it's a, yeah, you know, it is what it is. You know, I can't pronounce it. I certainly can't read it. Um, but you don't really have to read this one. It's actually a book from 1649, one of a number. And uh, if you're wondering why a book from French was in Marshall's Library, well, you know, Marshall's had books in all kinds of uh, languages. The, langu- the languages of learning in the early 18th century were many and varied. But um, the first librarian of Marshall's Library is a guy called Elias Boireau, a French Huguenot. And uh, the Liberties had become became a big magnet for Huguenots in the 18th century. And apparently Marsh's Library and um, St. Patrick's almost became kind of homes for that uh, French-speaking community. And speaking of, um, you know, Huguenots, one Huguenot linked to the Rising is in the name Lamas. Sean Lamas was apparently a Huguenot uh, extraction, if one goes back far enough. You know, and someone else who was a 1916 veteran along with his brother Noel. Now, be that as it may, this was uh, a Church of Ireland library to all intents and purposes. You know, an adjunct, if you will, of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And it was also located smack bang in the middle of a number of um, positions seized by the volunteers during the Easter Rising. First and foremost, Jacob's Biscuit Factory across the road in Bishop Street. And part of the reason why Jacob's Factory had been uh, seized was to hopefully interfere with the movement of troops coming from Portobello Barracks and Ramwines, now Carlborough Barracks, and Wellington Barracks on the South Circular Road, which is now Griffith College. Um, and the woodman fighting just off Clambrassus Street as well in places such as Fumbly Lane. It was also near the Dublin Metropolitan Police Station in Kevin Street. Um, it was also wasn't a million miles away from uh, from Dublin Castle. So Marshes was in the centre of uh, in the hub of quite a quite a, a quite a bit of activity. Now the thing is though, it's also beside St Patrick's Park and you know a, another legacy of the Guinness family to this city. And in the aftermath during the rise, and troops ended up in St Patrick's Park, and St Patrick's Park is where Thomas McDonough offered to surrender when the Jacobs garrison surrendered at the end of the Rising. It seems, however, that... um, Well, actually, it's not seems that this is recorded in the library's minutes, and I'll quote it from you, that I quote, On the morning of Sunday, 30th of April, a machine gun was inadvertently torn to the library from St. Patrick's Park. So basically, some machine gun Marsh's library. Begs the question, why? What did, what did Marsh's library done to deserve this? I mean... A lot of stu- a lot of staff in Marsh's, I suppose, would have been um, quite unionist in their politics, you know? And I mean... um. You know, the Church of Ireland wasn't an institution that was necessarily s- sympathetic towards republicanism, you know. Um, it was strafe, like, was it? Like, we're... Yeah. So these, basically, these bullets came through the window uh, and lodged in both the woodwork and in the books. Now, um, the thing is that, it, it, now, this may well have been an accident. 
no, it might have been a nervous or zealous soldier who thought that the library was occupied by the Sinn Feiners. Because I mean, the British seem to think that the entire city was hopping with Sinn Feiners. Um, I mean, in fairness, you know, some of the some of the staff and marshals had enlisted in the British Army prior to the First World War. I find it interesting though that um that when it was recorded, the library's minister said that the the fact that the library's machine gun was inadvertently, so it was either true, or they were giving the British Army the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Now I should say this: the, the books that were on the shelves weren't the only casualties that were rising. I mean, um, last week we mentioned the fires that broke out around um, around O'Connell Street and so far. But you know, there was actually a kind of there was a a number. Both Trinity College and Marsh's lost lost books that were being repaired in a bindery on um, on Abbey Street. You know, Marsh has lost about forty books, including a book from fifteen ninety that was actually entitled "That the Pope is Antichrist," and these were destroyed in the fires. So the thing is that it's um it's a small little. It's a small casualty or victim of the rising in an area that, um, relatively speaking, didn't see as much fighting as other areas. Mm. Like Jacob's Factory, Jacob's Factory was a big, imposing complex of buildings, a very big place, you know. And, um, I mean, Jacob's had started life, you know, making ships biscuits down at Waterford. But in the age, from the 1830s onwards, tea had become much more widely available as the East India Company lost its monopoly in importing the stuff. So, um, if you, if, as tea drinking got bigger and, way, and railways became more widespread well the biscuit the, the nature of the biscuit evolved from being this kind of grim miserable kind of you know hard-baked thing that was meant to last years in ships you know going across the seas to these kind of sweet little confectionaries that we'd uh, that we'd recognize today i mean uh jacobs invented the cream cracker in 1882 now sometimes cream crackers taste like they were invented in 1882 you know but they they, they cornered the market moved to dublin built this huge big edifice of a, of a factory um a quaker family Alongside Guinness, they're one of the major employers in the city, and their premises were um were fairly were pretty big and impressive, you know, complex of buildings, fragments of which survive on Bishop Street by the National Archives and uh, the the DIT complex as well. Now, this was now funnily enough, three of um three of the men who was who would, who would have um been executed after the rising were all present in Jacob's factory. Thomas McDonough, who was one. Um, Michael O'Hanrahan from New from um from Carlo and O'Hanrahan had uh from New Ross I should say O'Hanrahan had actually expressed concern that uh, by seizing Jacob's factory were they inviting devastating attacks in areas that were densely populated with civilians you know mm-hmm. and last but not least Major John McBride who apparently only turned about the last minute mm-hmm. and whose parting advice when uh, the garrison surrounded Jacob's was next time you do this lads don't ever hole up in a building like this uh, if you have the chance for freedom take it was as Potter Kearney recollected yeah because uh, I remember then Kearney went on the run afterwards with those words ringing in his ears if you have the chance for freedom take it yeah um, so are we lucky in many ways that um Actually, it was only a couple, a handful of books from Marsh's Library that were damaged. That it could have been a lot worse, considering where it was located. Well, six of them, six of them, and I suppose the um, from the point of view of the British, there wasn't that much happening in in the area. Mm-hmm. Like the the hope that troops might be engaged, if you will, from uh, from J- Jacob's factory. Well, the troops coming from those barracks I mentioned basically avoided it. You know, the real danger came from um, hostile locals. See, the, Jacobs was a big employer in the area. You're also talking about an area that would have had very, very high, would have had a lot of families of servicemen, you know. And, you know, you can kind of, you can understand where they were coming from. As far as they were concerned, these Sinn Féiners were pro-German. Mm. And therefore, if your loved one, if little Paddy or Johnny Amick was had fought in Gallipoli, was on the Western Front fighting the Germans, you mightn't be impressed that other Irishmen and women seemingly in cahoots with them in Dublin. So the volunteers, the main thing they had to face was the hostility from the locals. So... The British didn't necessarily have to do a great deal of fighting. And when McDonough surrendered, he surrendered at the corner of the park. Um, 
which is actually close to the Marshall's Library, not too far from Bishop Street. I mean, there's a ramp that leads down into the park today. I think there's a cafe beneath it these days, but it's the bit at St. Patrick's. So if that was where he was going to meet uh, General Lowe, who took the surrender, it kind of seems quite, it kind of seems possible that, well, maybe a British soldier just decided to kind of, you know, shoot up a few buildings in the vicinity just to make sure people are keeping their heads down and it wasn't a trick. And in the process, ironically, ended up shooting up Marshall's Library and caused approximately 16 pounds of damage according to the keeper of the library reverend newport jd white which he got refunded he did get refunded though we didn't mention all of it he um i mean you could you could apply for compensation for damage to property after the rising and he wrote uh, about the books the value of these things to a library as this is not to be gauged for what the man in the street would sell them for still i had the man in the street in my mind when i claimed only 16 pounds for the damage done to this library I did not mention the irreparable injury done to a beautiful locked door rent in six or seven places with large bullet holes. Now he probably should have he should have probably should have put in the full claim, you know. Um the woodwork would have been damaged. From his point of view, the damage to the books was more meaningful. But uh, he only seemed to have claimed for that. Okay, well John, thanks for that. Uh next week on our podcast, The History of the Easter Rising in Ten Objects, we'll be discussing a fragment of a wall from sixteen Moore Street that is inscribed by Thomas Clark. John's A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects is published by Mercier Press and in all good bookshops. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow the show on SoundCloud, read, watch and listen to much, much more about 1916 on independent.ie forward slash 1916.